We're in the book of James. How many of you read the book of James? All right, accompanying the book of James is Ezekiel. Um, we're not going to get into Ezekiel today. We're going to focus on James. I tried to weave them together. It's just too hard. James is, is there's too much in James I wanted to cover. And so maybe we'll come back to Ezekiel um, on a later day. But I want to ask this question. Is your faith in God genuine? How do you know your faith in God is genuine? Where you trust God 100%. Is your faith in God genuine? And if you nod your head, yes. If you say, yeah, my faith in God is genuine, then you read the book of James, and he's going to give you two words. Prove it. Right? I mean, that's the book of James, right? Prove it. And how do you prove it? And many people want to shout out works, because James talks a lot about works, right? And so is that truly how you prove your faith? Is it by your works? Maybe you came up on Tuesday when we passed out um, boxes of free produce to families in need. Maybe you greet at the door. Maybe you help in the children's ministry. Maybe you set up the delicious treats. Is serving God in those ways, does that prove you have genuine faith? If you read the book of James, you might think, yeah, that is. I, I, I do good things. I, I serve others. That's proving my faith. But is James really saying that? I don't think he is. I don't believe he's saying that. I don't think you have to get to work to prove your faith. I think the work is just going to come to you in the form of trials. If you read the book of James, you know that trials come about, right? Monday, for me, was one of those days. <laughs> you ever have one of those days, right? Monday, we had gotten back from vacation. Our dog had a cut on its leg. We had to take it to the vet. We took it to the vet. We picked it up at 3.30. And for four stitches, it was $350. Right? Some of you are like, man, I'm going to be a vet. <laughs> that was a financial blow, right? I mean, $350 for four stitches. And then I go to my son's baseball game, and I'm a coach for him. He's 12 years old, and we're at this baseball game, and our team is not very good this year, okay? And we're struggling, right? So we're, we're, we're on the verge of getting our first victory of the season. We're up 7-6. to six. It's the bottom of the last inning. And we just need three outs, and we're going to get our first victory. And I'm feeling for these kids, because these kids are, they want a victory so bad. And they're so close. Did we win? No. <laughs> we did not win. And so I go home dejected, right, an emotional blow after that uh, tough loss where we, we lose in the last inning. And I go home, and I'm just like, man, I'm done with this day, right? And I look outside, it's 8.45 at night. And I look out at our, our swimming pool, our above-ground swimming pool, and it's got a foot of water missing. And, and it's going down fast. There's a leak in the pool. So now I'm like going to Home Depot to get Flex Seal, as seen on TV, waterproof tape. And, and my wife is, is over on the deck with a flashlight because it's dark now. You know, the only thing missing is a snorkel, all right, because I'm scuba diving underneath here. And I'm sealing off this leak, right? And, I, and the water's cold, and, and, and finally, it's done, man. But what a day, right? What a day of trial, all right? I'm sure you have those days. Then I open up the book of James, and he says in chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. 
James was a comedian, I think. But what did he mean when he said to trials will bring you joy? Or how do you have joy when you have trials? Well, I think trials, the answer to that question is in my title. Trials allow you to prove your faith. Trials will develop your faith, if you will. Trials develop your faith. James gives multiple examples in this book. He jumps around a lot, but in his book he mentions people like Abraham who went through an intense trial, right, to prove his faith. And Rahab was mentioned, and Job is mentioned, and Elijah is mentioned. Their trials developed their faith, because trials do that. Now raise your hand if you like a challenge. Anybody like a challenge? Honestly, sometimes getting you to raise your hand is a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) But I love a challenge. Not always the part where it's grueling in the midst of the challenge, right? It's tough, you want to give up, but in the end, what happens when you make it through that trial, when you overcome that obstacle? You're stronger, you're better, right? That's the goal, that's the joyous part, if you will, the joyful part of going through a trial. I think that's what James is teaching us in this book. Trials develop your faith. For he goes on to say, after considerate joy, he says in verse 3, you know what the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, we don't really use that word very often, right? What does steadfastness mean? Patience. Patience. And when patience has its full effect, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So how do you prove your faith? We're back to that, right? How do you prove your faith is genuine? I think the answer is with our trials, the everyday trials that we go through. Those are the works that I believe James is talking about it, talking about. So the next time you have one of those days, or maybe it's a season of life that you're really, really struggling to get through, just know the whole process is developing your faith. This is God's plan. And think of the butterfly. If the butterfly does not struggle to fight its way out of the cocoon, it will never have the strength to fly. You can't help it. It's got to work its way out, and then it can fly. Trials will develop your faith. And then that's when it gets really good, because when you have genuine faith, you will produce fruit. Jesus said this, one of my favorite verses, John 15, 8. God is glorified. God is glorified when you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. When you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Trials develop your faith. Genuine faith produces fruit. And that's what James is talking about. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may this word today, may it hit us where we need to to feel it. May it touch our hearts. May it speak to us. May your Holy Spirit fill this place. May the the Shekinah glory, the cloud that filled the temple, may it it be here today. May we experience your love and your mercy and your grace and your glory. May this be an hour where we can worship you. Forget about all the things that are going on in our life today that trouble us, that cause us anxiety, that bother us, but may we just focus on you in your word today. May we experience your love and joy. In Jesus' name. Everybody said?
Amen. First question you ask yourself when you read a book in the Bible is, who wrote it? Well, James wrote it. I mean, it's named after him after all, right? But which James? Because in the book, uh, in the New Testament, there's four James, right? So which James are we talking about here? I mentioned I coached my son's baseball team, and out of the 11 players that I got for this season, three of them have the same name, Michael. Now, when they came the first day of practice, I said to them, okay, your guys' names are Michael. Do you go by a nickname? I'm thinking maybe one goes by Mike, and I can call the other one Mikey or something. Nope, they all like Michael. (laughs) You're not helping me out here, boys. So one's tall, I call him Big Mike. One's shorter, I call him Little Mike. And then one's left-handed, I call him Lefty Mike. So it helps us coaches, you know, get it situated. But um, there's four James in the Bible. So which one wrote the book? There's James, the father of Judas Iscariot. There's James, the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of John, the sons of thunder. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, the other disciple called James the Lesser. And then there's James, the brother of Jesus, called James the Just because of his disciplinary lifestyle. Which one of those wrote the book? Well, we can kind of determine based on some of the things that transpired through um, the New Testament that uh, James, the father of Judas, not mentioned any other times. Um, James, the brother of John, was actually beheaded um, early on for his faith. So it's not him. James, the son of Alphaeus, James the Lesser, um, he's not mentioned very often. Maybe that's why they call him James the Lesser. (laughs) Or maybe he was younger or shorter, we don't know. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, is talked about in Acts 15. He's the lead elder in Jerusalem, at the Jerusalem Council. And scholars um, agree, I think almost unanimously, that he is the author of this book. There's a really interesting fact about James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus. And of course, depending on how you grew up and what your um, doctrinal belief or or what you were taught about Mary, um, the mother of Jesus, um, that that could, you you could be a little confused as to why we're we're referring to the half-brother of Jesus. Um, But it is an understanding uh, from the Bible, uh, I believe, that that Mary and Joseph did... um, have kids after Jesus. So, James was one of those kids. Lead elder in Jerusalem, uh, he grew up uh, with Jesus for 30 years. Here's the interesting fact. He didn't really believe Jesus, his brother, was the Son of God until later. So for 30 years, he lived, right, with Jesus, and then, and that, that whole time he didn't believe. Which makes you think, like, okay, so when Jesus was at home at the dinner table and he got water in front of him, he didn't do one of these and get Hawaiian punch, okay? Or, like, his plate was almost done and he was still hungry and he did one of these and got another plate of food? That probably didn't happen, right? Jesus kind of reserved those miracles for his ministry, which took place really when he was about 30 for about three and a half years. That was the time when Jesus did miracles. But that didn't even convince his brother James. I mean, there's there's scripture that shows us they didn't believe. What was it that caused James to believe? Tell me. I know you know. The resurrection. That's right. He saw his brother die on the cross. Three days later, he saw his brother alive. In fact, Paul points out 
that Jesus appeared to over 500 believers, but he specifically mentions James. So James saw his brother alive, and that is why he believed. Now, it's very, I think, then um, poignant to mention now why he starts off his letter the way he does. Because he doesn't start off by saying, hey, this is James, you know, the brother of Jesus. Because that would give you a lot of credibility, right? He doesn't say that. What does he say in James 1.1? He says, in James 1.1, he says that um, I am, uh, the, the, he is uh, calling himself a servant of God. Do we have that scripture up here? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't call himself Jesus' brother. He refers to Jesus as his Lord. I think that's very significant for us, especially today, because there's a lot of people out there, I think, that want to call you know, Jesus their, their homie, their bro, all right? He's not your bro, bra, all right? He's your Lord. He's your Savior, right? There's a reverence that James had for his brother, which was his Lord, Jesus. Um, James would eventually die a kind of tragic death, if you want to know historically what happened to him. Eusebius was a historian, and it says that he was murdered by the Pharisees, the same ones who had Jesus killed. Apparently, they pushed him off the peak summit of the temple, which would have been about 10 stories high. He fell 10 stories didn't die, actually. By the way, that same peak summit was the one that the devil tempted Jesus and told him, jump off, the angels will save you, right? Jesus said, don't test the Lord God. But James was pushed off that, didn't die. They eventually stoned him after that fall. You should know James is probably the first actual book written of the New Testament books, written about 40 to 50 A.D., but then some would say, well, wait a minute, how come it's at the end of the New Testament? Why did it show up at the end? Well, I wasn't at the Council of Hippo in 393 or the Council of Carthage in 397, so I can't quite tell you as to why they placed it where they placed it. But I can tell you that there were some other books that were in question as to whether or not they were going to be included in the New Testament. First, second, and third John, Hebrews and Revelation were in that category. And I want you to know, because I think it's important, that you understand why there's 27 books in the New Testament. Why isn't there 28? Why isn't there 29? Why is there not more or less? How do they decide what books were going to be in the New Testament? There was four criteria, main criteria, when it came to putting a book in the Bible, in the New Testament that we have today. First of all, was the author an apostle or had a close connection to an apostle? That was a criteria that you had to have. Is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? That's probably one of the most significant ones. If you think about it, I mean, these books were written in the first century, and yet it wasn't until 300 and whatever that they're being now put together um, for a purpose. But the body of Christ, the church, had accepted certain doctrines for years and years and years. So was the body of Christ accepting this book as a whole? Did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching, what I just mentioned? And then, of course, did the book bear evidence that um, it was 
um, the Holy Spirit. As I like to say, the Holy Spirit moved the men who moved the pen. Did the Holy Spirit write this book? So James fits the criteria. Other books didn't fit the criteria. So that's why we have 27 books in the New Testament. James, by the way, doesn't write like our friend Paul. Right? The Apostle Paul who wrote a lot of the books, the epistles, the, the church letters, First and Second Corinthians, right? all of these, Ephesians, um, Galatians, Colossians. Paul wrote nicely. He wrote doctrine, like this is the teaching, the first few chapters, and then he wrote application. Right? Romans 12 says, therefore, based on all of this, do this. Right? James is all over the place. Right? Like, they call them, the, it's like the Proverbs of the New Testament, right? It's just, it's just all over the place. It's hard to nail it down. I mean, I tried to come up with some kind of outline. It was like putting kittens in a box, all right? It wasn't happening. But there is one overall central theme of the book of James that I want you to remember, and I hope you don't forget it, and that is trials develop your faith. So when you remember James, remember, trials develop your faith. I know people automatically go to works, because that's a big part of his letter. But the works are the trials that develop your faith. And faith produces what? You're still awake? Faith produces fruits. That's right. Some believe James contradicted Paul's books. As I mentioned, um, Paul and James were a little bit different. But here's something that really has bothered people for a long time. Because when you read Paul, you know that Paul was emphatic that our salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. Right? In Christ alone, you are saved. You cannot add works, you cannot do works to be saved. But yet, you have this one verse in James that causes a lot of trouble for people. It's in James 2.24, you'll see it on the screen. He says, A person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. Mm. That's a hard one, right? If you take that out of context, there's a lot of churches that are going to like that. Right? Catholics believe faith plus works equals salvation. A lot of Protestant churches. All the other religions think that you've got to work your way into heaven. Faith plus works equals salvation is not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not even what this verse is saying. When you take it into context, you must interpret the Bible with the whole Bible. Right? That's why there's not one book in the New Testament. There's 27 books. So that we can understand what is really being said here. John Calvin probably says it best. Faith alone saves. But faith that saves is not alone. Just let that sink in. Faith alone saves. But the faith that saves, it's not alone. You will naturally do good works when you are saved. Produce fruit. It's what you do. So James and Paul were in agreement. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But your faith is not alone. Genuine faith produces fruit. But first come the trials. So what are these trials that um, we experience uh, all the time? I said you don't have to go looking for them. Trials show up every day in your life. They showed up for me on Monday. All right, they'll probably be there for you today or tomorrow or the next day. And the trials that James mentions, I think, are worth mentioning today because it helps us understand that what we go through in life is normal. 
Man, if you ever think what you're going through is one of a kind, unique, and no one's ever experienced this before in your life, the devil is telling you a lie at that very moment in your life. Don't listen to that. Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. You have a trial you're going through. I guarantee you someone is going through that trial. Someone can encourage you and help you make make it through that trial. And first and foremost, we seek God when we go through trials. And uh, as we'll see how we do that in a little bit. But I want to mention these trials. First trial James mentions is the one of favoritism. He calls it partiality. Imagine I'm your neighbor on your left. Picture where you live right now. I'm your neighbor on your left. I understand. I'm your favorite. I get that, but let's just put that aside for a second. I'm your and on your right is maybe a single mom with three really noisy kids. They ride their bike all over your lawn. They leave their crap everywhere. They're loud. They don't respect you, right? You know what I'm talking about. Can you love your neighbor as yourself? Are you going to show favoritism? Because here's the quiet guy, and then there's the noisy kids. That's a trial that we will face every day when we look at different people that don't look like us, don't act like us, don't do what we think we should do, they should do, right? There's a trial there that we face that that can develop our faith. He mentions the trial of helping people in need. If you see someone in need, do you help them? Right? If I tell you the church is struggling financially, will you just say, as James says, Oh, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> Sometimes as Christians, we like to say that instead of doing something about it. Oh, I'll be praying for you. How about you do something about it for me? Right? That's what he's saying here. If you have an opportunity to help, do it. Don't just say, go on. Hope you do better. Right? If you can help, do it. But we're busy, and we like to take care of ourselves. So that's a challenge. That's a trial we face. James mentions it. Chapter 3 mentions taming the tongue. Anybody got a hard, have a hard time with that? Oh, somebody go, hold that, oh man, this is where I struggle. Don't preach it, pastor. Don't talk about it right now. But I'm gonna, because it's in James 3, 8, and 9. No human being can tame that tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, you bless our Lord the Father. You sang the songs this morning, and then today you're going to go home and curse people who are <laughs> made in the likeness of God. Your tongue is a trial every single day. How you talk to even the people you love the most, how we speak to them, right? Is your tongue honoring God? What a trial every single day. James chapter 4. Some of you are like, man, thank you, God. He's just moving past that so quick. It's okay, the Holy Spirit will get you. <laughs> Holy Spirit will speak to you. James 4, 1. This one really hit me uh, several years back when I had some conflict with another person in our church. They're not here, don't worry, it's not you. <laughs> James 4.1 says, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not your passions at war within you? Hmm. Passions at war within you. I mentioned um, I was uh, in a disagreement uh, with our former worship leader. I can't disagree with our current worship leader because she's too pretty. (laughs) My wife. But I dove into God's word because I was having conflict with another Christian. And I wanted to resolve it. Because I don't believe it's, I don't believe in holding grudges. It's not what 
the scripture. It's not what God teaches us. So I, I dove into God's word and I found very much comfort in James 4.1 because I realized what was going on. Because for a while there, I'm just like, I was like, what's going on? Why are we not getting along? What's the deal? And I read James 4.1. It's because of the passions at war within you. Our pride was the problem. He wanted what he wanted. I wanted what I wanted. So for, unfortunately, we couldn't just pray together and see what God wanted. Right? I tried to do that. I tried to reconcile. I tried to go to him and do the right thing and see if we couldn't work this out. Because you will have disagreements with other people. Right? You have disagreements with others? You should go to them and try to work it out. And if they leave, then there's nothing you can do about it. And that's what happened. He left. I can't do anything about that. I tried. I did my part. Wealth is also a trial that James mentions. And some of you might chuckle and say, I don't have any money. Pastor, I don't have to worry about that one. But I want to remind you, okay, when you compare your wealth to the other rest of the world, if you make just $50,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the world's population. So wealth, right, is relative. But James brings it up three separate times. Wealth corrupts people. Wealth corrupts people. It's a trial. Every day, if you're trying to live in luxury, trying to get a... um, More and more and more, that's a trial because it's never going to satisfy. You can get a bigger boat. You can get a better house, a sweeter ride. It's not going to satisfy you. He says, what is your life but a mist? It vanishes. It's over, just like that. What's important to you? Use your time and your money wisely. That is a trial we all face. And it will develop your faith. When you face trials, you need something more than anything. Think about it. You're going through a trial. You're struggling. You don't know what to do. You think you're smart, but then this thing hits you and you're like, I have no answer to this. I have no solution to this. I can't even come up with something. So you need this. You want to know what this is? You want to know what James tells you it is? In the next verse, verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, that's what you need. You need wisdom to navigate this trial. Wisdom not from that really smart guy in the church or or, uh, in the neighborhood or at school or work or whatever. You need wisdom from that guy above. Wisdom from above. He gives generously without reproach to those who ask and don't waver in their faith. Wisdom during trials. Remember Proverbs says, I had a little saying, proverb a day keeps the... Foolish away. Very good. That's right. Proverb a day keeps the foolish away. And James is giving you the secret here. He's telling you, ask for wisdom. Wisdom in the midst of your trial. There's something else he mentions in James 1 that I think is important because some of us confuse trials and temptations. You ever done that before? You're like, is God giving me a trial here? Is this a trial? Or is this a temptation from the evil one? Which is it, right? I mean, that's a tough one. Well, James clears that up for you. He says in verse 13 of chapter 1, let no one say when he's tempted that I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil. And he doesn't tempt anyone. How are you tempted? He says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Temptations are not from God. They're from the evil one. You have a choice every day to either feed the flesh or feed the spirit. Right? You walk by the spirit or you feed the flesh. And you're never going to gain victory if you are always tempted. If you're living in temptation. Trials are from God. Trials develop your faith. Temptation comes from the evil one. And it leads to death. Now the final thought James talks about here is praying in faith when you are suffering. Anyone suffering at all a little bit? Feel like you're kind of going through a tough time right now? I think there's something that's not mentioned very often, um, although teachers are very keen to it, and that is this issue with our students not being able to go back to school and how it's affecting their mental health. The mental health is a suffering that's going on right now. Honestly, that's a bigger epidemic than we have, or a pandemic than we have right now with the virus, I think. And I think a lot of us agree that suffering in, in terms of mental health is an issue. And here we have James talking about it. If you're suffering, whether it be physically, emotionally, right, mentally, what do you do? There's something you can't miss when you read the book of James. You can't miss the fact that you're not supposed to do this alone. You're not supposed to do this alone. You are not meant to be alone. When you read the last chapters, 4 and 5 of James, he's clearly pointing out to you that you need to have his church. His church. The body of Christ. You need to surround yourself with the body of Christ to help you get through this suffering. Praying in faith. I have this gamut of emotions when when Christians tell me they don't need the church. And I think about those people that, that maybe tried church out and they just gave up on it and they just want to stay home and stay away from other people because they can't find a way, whatever their reason is. I just I feel sadness towards that. I get frustrated towards that. I get mad towards that. Because we see in Scripture... We see in the Bible, we see God telling us, you need each other. You need each other. Why would you want to be alone in the midst of a trial? Even Job wanted to spend time with his three crappy friends. (laughs) Four of them. Because he didn't want to be alone. They had terrible advice, but he still didn't want to be alone. Isolation, by the way, is where the devil wants you to be. Eve fell to sin because of that. But James chapter 5, verse 13, he tells us, Is any of you suffering? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is any of you sick? Call for the elders of the church, the leaders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith saves the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so you'll be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power or it availeth much, as the KJV says. You need the church. The church needs you. That's why I ask you to fill out your connection card or just email me and let me I want to pray for you. Joe is one of our elders. He wants to pray for you. Other people love to pray. 
And they want to pray for you. They want to know how to pray for you. If you keep silent and you don't tell anybody what's going on in your life, that's, that's just a recipe for disaster. I can never forget the, the men's ministry uh, meetings that I've gone to with, with other men and just hearing the things that they struggle with and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. We struggle, all of us do. Don't keep it a secret. You need each other. We need the church. The church brings healing. I want you to have joy in the midst of your trials. Trials develop your faith, and faith, genuine faith, produces fruit. James should inspire you to take that next step with God. What's your next step? What are you going to do next? You heard a message from the Word of God, from the book of James. You heard that trials are normal, everyday, part of life. God puts them in your life. He has a plan for you. They're going to develop your faith. Your faith produces fruit. What are you going to do now? Maybe you need to ask God for forgiveness. Maybe it's been a while. And you need to go home and get down on your knees and you need to pray to God and ask for forgiveness. Maybe you, you need to take a step towards growing in your faith. You need to start reading your Bible more consistently. Or maybe you've come and you're like, you know what, I, I, I need to be in church regularly. Maybe you need to pray more. What's your next step? Maybe it's baptism. Baptism identifies you with Jesus Christ. You come forward, you publicly profess to the whole world that you are identifying yourself as a Jesus follower, as a Christian. I can't think of anything bigger than that big step of being baptized. If you've never been baptized like Jesus, Jesus was fully immersed underwater, came up, John the Baptist baptized him. That may be be your next step. I want to encourage you to do that. I don't know what your next step is. If you want to talk, I'm available. I'm full-time, baby. Full-time. First time. And I'll be happy to talk with you. Because we love each other, don't we? We need each other, don't we? I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to invite the Shelnut family to um, head downstairs and prep. And after I pray, the, the, the team will sing our song and then we'll have some baptisms. Sound good? God, I pray, I pray that you would speak to our hearts to take that next step. I pray, Father, that whatever that step is in our life right now as we're singing this song, this final song, as we're watching three individuals take that next step to be baptized, I pray, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in a, in a mighty way. Sometimes when you speak, as you spoke to Elijah, it's a gentle whisper, but sometimes you speak like a megaphone in our ear, and we just need to respond to you. We need to not ignore you, but, but listen and respond. I pray, Father, that we can do that. Pray that we could take that next step closer to you, that we could grow in our faith. I thank you for James. I thank you for his ministry and his life, his faithfulness. Thank you, Father, that he wrote this book, this letter that we can read today, practically 2,000 years later, and still applies to our life. 
because your Holy Spirit moved him as he wrote these words. And they apply to us, and we can love them. In Jesus' name, everybody said.